0: I feel like this sounds silly when I say it out loud, but one of the hardest things about life is accepting that it's hard. And I think part of that is because we're so hooked on the narrative of a happy ending, on that things will be okay, and there is some sort of cosmic justice in the world, and that there we have to make sense of the chaos because life really is chaotic. I mean, in in different parts of the world, prosperity is rare. I hate to break it to you, but life is unfair and chaotic and good people get sick and bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And there doesn't seem to be a method to the madness, except that we're all in this boat of surviving the insurvivable. We're all going to die. And so we're here to survive this journey through thick and thin through the good and the bad and unfortunately some bad unfair ugly shit is going to happen in our lifetime and as humans we're storytellers we really are all storytellers and we're narrative driven creatures we're searching for meaning and trying to write the story that is our life as we go and make sense of it And one of the reasons i created hello humans to begin with is because we're constantly comparing our stories and our narratives and our experiences to these fantasies and these illusions all around us whether it's facebook or instagram feeds whether it's the movies that we watch that really have nice clean endings and it's about time for writers to really help get us comfortable With the uncomfortable truth that life is hard and it's unfair, and there's beauty in that, that it doesn't take away from the beautiful moments to accept that not everything ends well. For me in recovery, not every addiction story ends in healing. You know, I've seen friends die of addiction. And that doesn't take away from the beautiful moments of their life, the times where they were great sons and daughters or brothers or uncles or nephews. This life that we have is complex and messy, and it's such a rich, rich environment for storytellers to capture that and help us become comfortable with the uncomfortable truth that life is hard. Today's guest is Lisa Genova. A neuroscientist turned novelist who wrote the bestselling book, Still Alice, that eventually became a Hollywood movie and won an Oscar for best performance. But the thing I love about Lisa is she's a master storyteller of telling a believable story that you can actually see yourself in because it has real conflict. She's so far centered all of her books around unsurvivable diseases so the main characters are facing this hopeless disease that will not end well and for every great story needs good conflict that's like the secret of storytelling but the conflicts are so true not only the major conflict of facing an unsurvivable disease but how the family how the friends how the supporting characters are all grappling with that in their own ways how she captures the beauty in the moment without presenting some fairy tale where things can are it's really wonderful work and if you're a storyteller you should look to her work because there's an honesty and integrity in the story that doesn't lose the beauty it's really masterfully done and on top of that she has this belief that is contagious she actually got denied when she was trying to find a publisher for the book and ended up self-publishing and it just makes her story that much richer and that much more interesting so here is my conversation with lisa Genova on finding the hope in hopelessness okay we're live
1: awesome
0: uh lisa Thanks Hi. for having me in your hotel room.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you bet. I'm so glad this worked out.
0: <laughs> me too. I'll, I'll just start with asking you who you are. And that can be as big or as small of a question as you want it to be. But I love to hear how people think of themselves.
1: Oh, gosh. Um. All right. So I my background is in neuroscience. I used to do brain research. And I've always been fascinated with the brain and how it works to allow us to think and remember and desire and talk and walk. Um, But now I'm mostly a storyteller and that's kind of how I think of myself these days. And I like to write stories about people who are living with neurological diseases and disorders. And soon I'm going to be writing about mental illness as well to try to capture their humanity, to allow these folks to be seen and heard in a way that really allows us to feel empathy and so that they're no longer ignored and feared and misunderstood. So I spend spend a lot of my time thinking about both the neurological conditions and the human condition.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I always like to, if the person doesn't include it, to include some of their accolades. So you wrote uh, what I would call a masterpiece. Congratulations! Oh my on that. goodness, thank With you, Still Alice. And I wasn't able to read. I think you've written five. Yes, I wasn't able to read them all, but I did read. <laughs> totally Still Alice. okay. Which was turned into a movie very successfully. Again, congrats! That can go either way, right?
1: Oh my gosh, it could have been a train wreck, <laughs> With and a so book. so grateful.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm just wanted to say congratulations on that, and it, it was a great, a successful transition from science into writing. Thank you. How did you first get started into neuroscience?
1: Okay, so yeah. uh, I went to Bates College in Maine, and I studied biopsychology, which is now the neuroscience major, but I'm old enough that neuroscience as a major didn't exist back then. But it really is, I studied the psychology of our biology. So, you know, what's in the biology of our psychology both ways. So, you know, why, what's the molecular underpinnings of memory? For example, I studied that at Bates. I studied the biological underpinnings of addiction when I moved on to Harvard And I was really all in. The brain was so fascinating to me, as opposed to, you know, the heart is a pump and the kidney's a filter, but the brain is this, you know, it's this machine that, that houses, you know, your soul in so many ways. So I was all in studying neuroscience from about the age of 18. Why? (laughs) I think, well, I was really, I was, I was a science and math geek from the beginning. That, that, understanding science and math comes very easily to me. And so I think as a kid, you, you do what you're good at. And, and again, I just, I thought it was, it was so different than studying the other organs of the body. Just this, this, you know, three pound lump of tissue in your head that can, you know, see you right now and have opinions about it. And I can use my brain to, uh you know, I, I like certain foods and not others. And that goes on, those decisions happen in in your brain. It's just fascinating to me. I also read a book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks, which I think a lot of people have read. He's He was a neurologist and this book was a, basically like a collection of short stories of, and true stories of people living with various sort of weird neurological conditions. And I read that when I was 18 and just completely fascinated by it.
0: I'm very fascinated with the brain, but it's because I have a strange relationship to mine. Okay. We're learning to be friends, I would say, me and and my brain. Because as I've said on the show before, like, uh, sometimes it feels like I just have a brain that wants me dead. You know, whether it comes to my depression or suicidal ideation or... um, my alcoholism and addiction like there are mechanisms whether i was born with them or whether there was something that came along the way that are at odds with my ideal version of myself mm. yeah so sometimes for me you know reading a really dry un you know un uh biased psychologist paper is nice and refreshing because it's not so emotionally charged. Okay. You know, and there's no opinions about how it relates to me. I'm just reading about how this person thinks that, you know, exposure therapy is the juice and where someone else doesn't. And it's just interesting for me to think about in in that way. And so I guess I was wondering, yeah, if it was just something you're interested in, or if there was some experience in your life that drew you to it.
1: Well, in terms of studying the brain, it wasn't necessarily an experience that drew me to it. And yet, you know, so I am very much um, drawn to other people's stories. So, you know, like when I was studying the molecular basis of drug addiction, I was reading books by Pete Hamill and Carolyn Knapp um, about alcoholism or trying to understand how the brain gets hijacked. And so how you can experience this dissociation between wanting and liking and Um, likewise with depression. I studied that for years at Harvard. Um, and you're right. I think that if you read sort of textbook or scientific paper information, it's, it's helpful to get information. Um, and yet I also think that that there's a place for that. It's, it's knowledge, it's information, it's facts, but that tends to stay very intellectual. And the transition for me into becoming a novelist was, well, how can I, Take that factual scientific information, which is important. We we need to know the truth about that. And I love the science, but how can we then feel something about it too? And I think that if you can add on narrative and empathy to factual scientific information, then you have a much richer, deeper understanding of of what this experience of depression or addiction or Alzheimer's is like.
0: I agree. I, I think that especially when it comes to education there needs to be you need to get clever about it the information is not enough and so I, but how did you go from see we have very different life paths where you were great at school and you you end up a very s- successful on paper neuroscientist i mean you had a career path in front of you and you decided to start writing and so how did that actually come about or how did you start you know, we all have so little time. So right. writing a book means diverting a significant amount of time and energy into this path. And and how did that come about?
1: Right, right. I'm regularly saying to folks, you know, we only have so many minutes in this body in this lifetime. How are you going to use them? And it's, it's um, such a Privileged to be around like folks with ALS when I was just doing my last book who really get crystal clear on I've only got so many minutes left. And it's and it's um, remarkable to see how people get clear on how they want to spend those minutes when you're faced with your mortality. I think a lot of us ignore that. Um, So writing was entirely unplanned for me. I, you know, I didn't grow up as a writer. I don't have an MFA. I didn't take writing classes or belong to a writer's group. Um, It started in one sense that my grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's back in the 90s, and I'm part of a big Italian family, and I'm the neuroscientist in this family. So I figured I'd learn everything I could about Alzheimer's so that we could be better caregivers. And I learned, you know, the medical management, I learned the neuroanatomy, I learned like everything that was out there, Um, but everything was written from the perspective of an outsider. So it was, you know, scientists and clinicians and caregivers and social workers, and it lacked the perspective of the person with Alzheimer's. And so while I could understand my grandmother as a neuroscientist, I really had no clue how to be with her as her granddaughter. Um, This disease, for me, I was in my 20s at the time, and I was, I felt unnerved and heartbroken and confused and embarrassed and powerless and really uncomfortable around her. And I remember thinking at the time that you know what I was really lacking was empathy. I felt bad for her and, that was, and I felt bad for us and that sympathy. And I didn't know how to feel with her. I couldn't imagine what it felt like to be her. And part of it was just that I, was, I was, had a lot of fear around it. So I just, I didn't know how to do it then. And I remember thinking, well, story is a way that you can walk in someone else's shoes story is a way to experience what someone else is feeling. And I thought, well, someday I should write a book about someone with Alzheimer's and tell it from her perspective. And then maybe then I could figure out this empathy piece that was missing because this kind of story hadn't been written about Alzheimer's back then. And, but I was a neuroscientist and I didn't know how to write anything. So I was like, I'll do it when I'm retired. I'll do that someday when it's safe and there's no risk and it'll just satisfy this question that I couldn't get an answer to. Fast forward a few years, um, I had, it was in 2000, so that was in, when did I, I came up with that idea in 1998. In 2000, my daughter was born. I quit my job. I had been, at this point, I was a strategy consultant for biotech and pharmaceutical companies. And I quit that job to be home with her, planning to be home for about a year. And just kind of wanted to get her started in a sane way without me traveling and working like 60, 70 hours a week. And in that time, my marriage started to unravel and I didn't go back to work because I was sort of paralyzed in sort of the the fear of what was happening. And then I was separated and divorced. So now I've got a three year old and I'm a divorced, unemployed single mom, like should have gone back to work. Mm. But I think that I was really heartbroken and and scared and ashamed. I felt like I had failed and I felt sort of unacceptable. I grew up Catholic and my parents were married. And like you said on paper, everything was sort of checked off the boxes. Like my life was going very sort of according to expectation and plan. And now suddenly, you know, I'm a divorced, unemployed single mom. And I I really felt unacceptable. And I had a lot of fear around, well, what's my life going to look like next? And it, and it like caused a lot of sort of crying at first. And then it shifted and became this sort of like interesting curiosity thank goodness, because it was the curiosity that helped invite the questions that sort of steered me in a more positive direction. It was like, and so instead of like, oh my God, what's my life going to look like next? Like fear and crying. It was, what's my life going to look like next? Like, what do you want it to look like? If you could do anything you wanted, what would that be? And the answer that I couldn't escape was I want to write that book. And it wasn't a good answer. It wasn't reasonable because I didn't know how to do it. And I'm already in this space of like, I'm unemployed, I'm divorced. I'm sort of outside the norm. Um, at least it felt so at, at the time. And now I'm going to do, now I'm going to do this thing, which really is outside the norm for me anyway. I'm like, I'm going to try to write that novel.
0: That writing um, a novel is not a good career decision. No,
1: I know. My When I told my parents, my father said, well, don't expect to ever make any money. And I didn't know that I was doing this as a career. I I said it was it was listening to that inner truth of I know I want to do this. And like you said, you know, you only have so many minutes. And and so it wasn't like I was going to be wasting the minutes. It's it's like I'm going to do this because I can't get away from the fact that that's what I the, the only thing that keeps coming to me that I really want to do. Um, so I didn't imagine Julian Moore winning an Oscar. I didn't imagine a career as it. I just did the next thing in front of me. It's like, okay, I'm going to try to write this book. How do I do that? Um, so I began as you know, a self-taught student. I began reading books on craft. I, I began doing the research. So I, I got to know neurologists and, and 27 people living with Alzheimer's who were in the early stages who could still communicate what it feels like to have it. And I was in touch with them every day for the year and a half that I was writing the book. Um, when I'd get really scared and think, like, who am I to be doing this? This is crazy. You're a neuroscientist. You're not a writer. Um, I would go into bookstores and libraries and look at, like, the thousands of books there. And I'm like, well, all these people did it. It's, it's not impossible. Why not you?
0: Yeah, you're, I mean, you're making light of that. But giving yourself per- permission like that is really a huge... I know. Feet. I mean, I imagine in the moment it didn't feel that light. Felt,
1: no, yeah. no. I mean, it's like been 10 years now since Still Else was published by Simon & Schuster. I, so I began that book in 2004. And now it felt scary, but I also felt really alive and excited. I really did. I, I, it was. And because I didn't know other writers, I didn't really appreciate how difficult it can be to get your book published and to you know, have a life as a writer. But I wasn't that wasn't the goal. Like, fortunately, I didn't know what I didn't know in some respects. So there was the fear of like, I don't know how to do this, but it was also exciting again to, to learn and to discover. And, and again, like being in touch with these folks with Alzheimer's um, felt really important and like a privilege to be able to listen to someone who really wants to share what they're going through and not just the superficial stuff that most of us experience every day with, you know, like, how are you doing? Good. Good good, good, good to see you. Like you do a lot of that. And these conversations with people with Alzheimer's, they really, you know, they really want to be seen and heard. And they're generally not included in what gets talked about if we talk about Alzheimer's at all, because people think of Alzheimer's. And I think the general conception of those folks is you imagine someone who's at end stage in a nursing home who doesn't know anyone anymore and is dying of Alzheimer's what does living with Alzheimer's look like and sound like and feel like? I think most of us couldn't have imagined it looking like someone like Julianne Moore. So these folks are sharing with me, you know, their deepest fears and regrets and hopes and their desires to keep living and loving and, and, and the, the losses that are happening. And it's really intimate, like, like open-hearted, open-souled stuff. And I think that when you, if someone allows that kind of connection and vulnerability, like, I mean, I think that's what all of us human beings want is to connect in a very real way like that. And so it was, it was, um, it was a wonderful experience. It, it, it drove me. Um, so like the fear wasn't the major thing. It was, these folks are sharing something really important with me and I felt, a responsibility and and an opportunity to do something really important with it.
0: I think you touched on something that I think is a a universal truth that we all want to be seen and heard. Yeah. Some of us are absolutely misrepresented and underrepresented, I think in terms of Alzheimer's just because it's not marketable. Right. You know. right. <laughs> uh, but I think at its base even at even at some of our ugliest behaviors is about being seen and heard somebody did a video. So who was, I think the school of life. Are you familiar with their work? No, they do great videos based on psychology or on philosophy. And they did one on Dick pics and, and they, it's wonderfully done. It's wonderfully done to where they basically say, you know, it's a, it's an ugly expression of, of wanting to be seen because we wear these clothes, this, this armor all day and these, and it's like artists, doing self portraits. It's like a similar kind of and so it's a toxic, ugly expression of that. But at its at its base, that's kind of what we all want is we all want somebody to see all of us, even our flaws, even the parts that could be gossiped about, and for somebody to say, I still accept you.
1: Right. I think we all want to be seen and heard. We all want to love and be loved. We all want to belong. Uh, We all want to matter. Yeah. And I think when you boil all of it down, like those, are, whatever the story, whatever the situation, I think that, you know, everything's either fear or love based. And the fear is about not being seen, about not being accepted. Yeah.
0: And I guess I have a, a kind of creative process question is I love doing kind of the field work. Like I could imagine going and, and making relationships with these people with Alzheimer's. While it's scary and intense, it's also, it's, it sounds rewarding. It sounds like a really rewarding experience. But to stay the course with the book, especially when real life is happening, when bills are happening and when your kid is, hap- I'm sorry, your daughter, yep, yep. When your daughter's happening. So it sounds like it was a young daughter. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. She was four when I started the book.
0: So that's like a really hands on age. And to stay the course when me as a creative in that place, I have a nine year old and the bills barely get paid and it's really hard. I don't think anyone who hasn't been in that place can quite capture what not quitting means.
1: Yeah. It's like, it's sort of like writing the book in some ways. Like if I had tried to imagine like the forever, am I going to be able to afford my life forever or five years from now or 10 years from now, like it could get really overwhelming. And likewise with writing the book, if I sit down, I'm like, oh my God, I have to write a 300 page book. I might get jammed up and paralyzed and not be able to write a single word. But if I just focus on what's in front of me, like, okay, I'm going to try and write, you know, a page. I'm going to try and write a thousand words. I'm going to try and write four pages. Like that's manageable and I can not be freaked out over that. And so with respect to you know, paying the bills and being a single mom and I didn't think like, is it am I going to be able to make it? Am I gonna be able to send her to college? Like that would have just, you know, I would have jammed up and been like, I gotta go back to being a consultant or a neuroscientist because I wasn't making any money at first. And I didn't know if I ever would. But if I tried to wrap my arms around like the possibility of I'll never make any money, I'll never be able to support myself, then that's, you know, a very good excuse to stop. And so I just look at what's in front of me. Can I afford my life today? Yes. Um, am I going to write some pages today? Yes. Um, so, you know, it it took me a year and a half to write the book. I was giving myself a deadline, um, because I, you know, I did need to feed us and I, I did need to, um, to carry on. So my, my, um, first husband and I, we, you know, I had no child support, no alimony. We just split our expenses, um, which I'm so grateful that we handled things that way because it really set us both free and we're we're both still good friends. Um, but it meant in a very real way that at some point I have to earn a living because it was like just dwindling my savings account. So my daughter was in preschool and then kindergarten and I was writing while she was in school. And I've found that most writers only write for about four to five hours a day, even if they have the expanse of the whole day in front of them. Most writers don't write for eight hours. It's a pretty intense experience um, if you're totally focused and not checking Facebook and doing other things. Um, And so I would write while she was in school and I would have to stop to pick her up Mm -hmm. sort of mid-sentence or mid-chapter, which was kind of a blessing because it meant that the next day I could go roll right back into it. But um, I finished it in a year and a half and then no one would publish it. Um, I got either the, the dear author, no thank you, rejection letters, or three people wanted to read it. And one I still haven't heard back from. But the other two thought this, you know, Alzheimer's is too scary and it's too depressing. And I don't think that people are going to have the courage to read something like this. They're just not going to want to. So everybody passed on it. And so it was um, I, I did decided to, the choice at that point was either stick the book in a drawer and go back to making a stable living like I knew that I could or self-publish it um so I self-published still Alice at first and sold it out of the trunk of my car like a loser I was such a loser <laughs> um and I was giving myself a year because I at that point if it didn't work I was just you know I got to I got it. It's, it was like a reality check, and I felt good that I had written it. But I also thought that this book could have an opportunity to say something important and help folks um, who are being ignored and marginalized and otherized. Um, but I was being realistic too, so I was giving myself a year. And like miracle of miracles, it um, I, word of mouth led me to an agent and Simon and Schuster. Ten months into that year, and got the book out of the trunk of my car.
0: There's like a funny connection where like a local paper. Mm -hmm. right yeah wrote a story on it and then it kind of perked someone else's attention and then
1: yeah so it was beverly beckham at the boston globe um read the book and wrote this amazing review of it in the sunday paper which you know for a self-published writer that's was unheard of back then um and A local author named Julia Fox Garrison, who'd written a memoir called Don't Leave Me This Way, wrote into the columnist thanking her for portraying a self-published writer in such a positive way. Turns out that Julia had originally self-published her memoir and then gone on to get a book deal with HarperCollins. Well, Beverly recognized that this was exactly what I was hoping for. So she put us in touch. And um, so Julia ended up introducing me to her agent and her agent became my agent. Um, and then interestingly, this is a fun story. When uh, my agent sold still Alice* to Simon Schuster, I called Julia to thank her for so generously changing my life with that introduction. And she said, well, is this it? Did you just want to write a book about Alzheimer's and you're done or do you want to write more books? And I, so now that I'm going to be able to feed my daughter and I I said, no, actually, I would like to write more. And I had a back to Oliver Sacks, the man who mistook his wife her hat. There was a short story in that book about a man with left neglect. And so I told Julia, like, I would really love to write a story about someone with this sort of bizarre neurological condition called left neglect. And she's completely silent on the phone at first. And then she says, Lisa, I have left neglect. So Julia became the first person that I I ever knew um, living with left side neglect. And so that was my second book.
0: Wow, what just to have it in the program, and because I actually don't know what is left neglect.
1: So, left side neglect is um, a condition that results following uh, a traumatic brain injury or a stroke or a hemorrhage on the right side of your brain, in which your brain can no longer pay attention to anything on the left side of anything, including the left side of you. Hmm. So if you have this, you'd eat food only from the right side of your plate and think you've finished your meal. Um, you'd shave the right side of your face, have a full beard on your left and not know it. Um, women would put makeup on the right side, nothing on the left go out. Um, your eyes see that your vision works um, and you're not paralyzed. You could, you could use your left arm and left leg, but you're not aware that it's there anymore. So you don't pay attention to it. So that book is about this very strange pathological inattention and it's also about all of the ways that we don't pay attention to what matters every single day. We're such a distracted culture right now. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What are all the conditions that you've covered in in your books? Cuz they all do center around some neurological condition, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's sort of the unique thing I bring to fiction cuz again, like I'm not I didn't grow up as a as a creative writer. And so I think that a lot of folks who are capable of writing a beautiful story don't have this neuroscience background or passion. And so between having the passion and then having the access to people and sort of the credibility to talk to those folks, whether it's, you know, the chief of neurology at Brigham and Women's in Boston or just people who have it. um, So I feel like this is my unique contribution to fiction. Um, So I've written about Alzheimer's. Left side neglect and tra- traumatic brain injury, autism, and the nonverbal, more serious end of the spectrum. So not Asperger's, which I think has a lot of stories out there. Um, Huntington's disease and ALS. And then the next novel I'm going to write is about someone with bipolar.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So not a lot of uh, happy endings uh, in the traditional Disney sense, where
1: right, right, there's
0: an antidote and where everybody gets to be back together. I mean, it's really highlighted in Still Alice is the reality that things only get worse from here. And that doesn't mean that there, you know there's not opportunity for beautiful moments along the way, but there's no secret sauce that's going to fix this problem.
1: Right, right. So my film agent at the very beginning said to me, You've got a drama starring a 50-year-old woman with Alzheimer's and no triumphant ending. Hollywood is never going to make that film. And so you're right. So, you know, I'm always, the goal is to tell the truth under the imagined circumstances. So I can't cure Alice's Alzheimer's. Um, And yet I'm hoping, and and my belief is that these books are not tragic and depressing in the sense that when you finish it, you hopefully you feel a full range of human emotions and not just wasn't this so sad and it, hopefully it's not pity and it's not sympathy it's you know i'm always i'm always amazed by the resilience and the adaptability and um the heroism i see in in families dealing with these kinds of crises so you know people with you know als is a great example um, life expectancy following a diagnosis of ALS is three years. And you become increasingly paralyzed. So you can't walk anymore. You can't feed yourself. You can't toilet yourself. You eventually can't speak. I mean, it's horrifying and tragic and so fast. Um, eight of the 12 people I came to know and doing the research for every note played died before I finished writing the final draft. So this was intense. And so you think, well, it must be just awful all the time. But, but people don't live that way. They don't live with. The tragedy and the horror, twenty four seven. People, again, okay. I've only got so many minutes left, and they're compromised in a major way here. But what do I? How do I make the most of this? How do I still matter while I'm here? Um, can I offer words of love and forgiveness and redemption while I can still speak? Um, I think a lot of us, you know, with ALS, you eventually can't speak, and the thought of that is terrifying to all of us. And yet you and I are sitting here. We're capable of saying anything we want. Our voices work. And how many of us don't say the words that we really need to say to folks, right? Like maybe I owe someone an apology, but I don't say sorry because it's a little scary or I think I've got all the time in the world. So I see people um, get really clear on who they are and what's important and what matters. And so, in addition to the doom and gloom and the the terror and the horror and the the tragedy of all of this, there is also a lot of hope and love and and beauty. And so, I never want to romanticize anything, but I don't want to you know I don't want to minimize the 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 wonderful opportunities. I I knew a man with Alzheimer's. He was diagnosed when he was forty seven, and. And it's awful in a million ways. And I will never forget, though, he said to me, he said, Lisa, there are gifts that come with this if you choose to open them. And another man with Alzheimer's told me, it's all in how you hold it. And so some people have the ability to frame what's happening to them in a way that not only doesn't sink them, but even while these diseases are diminishing them in sort of these obvious ways, there are ways that they actually grow as well.
0: Yeah, I've always had a very. Real, I, I, my mortality has always been very in my face, especially from an early age. One of my mom's friends gave birth to a child that I forget what it had, but it was going to die before, named Bryce, before it was five. And so, um, you know, no judgment on my mom, but we went over and I made, I had a relationship to this little child, and it was told to me that you know it's not going to live. But the temporariness of it all was very real. And in the course of my addiction, I had, I had a friend get stabbed to death when we were fifteen, because uh, everybody was drunk, and the I was the weird nine year old who was terrified of death and trying to find some way to have my fears relieved in the in the Disney sense. In the you know, I clung to religion because I love the idea of heaven and all these things that seemed to offer an antidote. And at the same time, none of them filled that void of that pit in your stomach when you try to imagine it, and something clicks, and you can sort of grasp what no consciousness would be like. I don't know if you've ever <laughs> mentally gone down that rabbit hole but yeah, there's like if you talk to somebody else that does it, you get this crushing weight in your stomach for a second, and a lot of my life has been trying to to live in a way that you know since i've been sober which has only been over seven years but trying to make death less scary through the way i live and what i love about your work is see for me i mean maybe i'm very narcissistic but the the idea of finding some hope and hopelessness is the human condition and i think that when you have somebody who's terminal like my dad uh Passed this year from uh, multiple myeloma, which is, you know, when he got the diagnosis, there's no coming back. I mean, everybody tries and everybody's hopeful, but the more you read, the more you realize this is, yeah, we're on a new track now. That is, to me, when somebody gets a terminal diagnosis, it's highlighting something that's always been true. You know, yes, you're on a different timeline.
1: None of us get out of this alive. Yeah,
0: but what has always been true is that some sense there is this end. And uh, I'm not taking away from anyone that believes in an afterlife. Um, But that's what I loved about your work is I, I, I didn't necessarily even feel like I didn't feel like it was isolated to Alzheimer's. I felt like Alzheimer's was the mechanism to show what's always been true.
1: Oh, uh, thank you. Yes. It's yeah. you know, these neurological conditions are a vehicle for all of us to examine our shared human condition. So so while I really want you all to become familiar with these Neurological diseases and disorders and mental illness that you might have been unfamiliar with and therefore really uncomfortable with, and kind of ignoring or otherwise. And I want you to gain that empathy. I also think and hope and thank you for that that these books are not about the diseases in some ways. They're, you know, they're about our shared human experience. And so they're about, you know, how. How do I matter? And why am I here? And if I have a, a disease like Alzheimer's that that steals all of the memories I've ever made in my life, and I don't know who I am, am I still me? Does is does my soul transcend, you know, my ability to remember this conversation? Um, so I I my hope is that all of these stories get to issues and ideas that we all wrestle with and give people a sense of, um, invite a conversation that will be an opportunity for self-reflection and, um, maybe a better understanding of not only other people, but themselves.
0: With Alzheimer's specifically. And I guess with, with ALS as well, forgive me for forgetting the, if, if I'm missing one, it is about having very real parts of your identity stripped away, right? Like Alzheimer's is, is when you're, when you die, you lose your identity. That's the truth. But Al- Alzheimer's and ALS are these diseases that can take away what your identity is while you're still in a husk while you're still in your body. And doing the research and spending this time, I had a, a grandmother who had, who had Alzheimer's and it's, it's in our, in our family. And so I've thought about it, especially. Doing the work, researching you. How does that inform your decision about your own identity, about how you, about what you cling to and identify with, and make a part of your your spirit? To use you know, yeah, yeah. That
1: language. Well, I think some of what I have learned along the way, and it's it's wonderful that you use the word cling because I think that I I have learned not to cling. To this sort of external identity, um, any number of them. So, I'm a neuroscientist, I'm a storyteller, I'm because everything is transient. And that's just the external, what I'm doing. The who you're being doesn't get stolen from these diseases that I've studied so far. And I've seen it over and over again. So, you know, with ALS, I wrote a story about a world renowned concert pianist who is a bit of a narcissist and his life is big and external and and everybody's paying attention to him. And then he gets this disease that is going to collapse his existence to the space of a room and a wheelchair and nobody's looking at him anymore. And so his identity, I mean, this is a crisis of identity in a big way because he's so identified with the concerts, the, the successful concert pianist, and now he can't play piano and now no one's, you know, no one's looking at him. And so, and so what you realize or what I've realized is that you are not those things. Those things are going to come and go, whether it's due to ALS or a death or something, they'll come and go. Um, and so the real question of identity is is the internal, it's the internal purpose. It's the internal sense of I am. Um, and inside the O'Briens, this is a story about a family with Huntington's and Huntington's is a hundred percent genetic. So if mom or dad have it, every kid has a 50, 50 chance of inheriting a gene that will cause all will cause Huntington's. So there's nothing that you can do to prevent it if you've got the the gene. And so interestingly, if you've, if you're gene positive, you can find out if you're gene positive. So you can go get a blood test and find out, am I going to get Huntington's in 15, 20 years? And it's, it's a hundred percent lethal. So,
0: and it's a big Irish family.
1: And this is a big Irish family in Boston. And so the parents, you know, had the kids before they knew that dad had Huntington's and now these four kids in their twenties have to wrestle with, do I want to know? And so part of that story is like, we don't have any, medical way of fighting this disease. So how do you find hope in this hopeless situation? And one of the daughters, Katie is a yoga teacher and through her yoga life and, and teachings, and, and I did a 200 hour teacher training and research for her character for this book. One of the things that she comes to understand, and I end the book on this note, is the idea of just, I am. So rather than I am a do- you know, I'm a Catholic Irish Catholic in Charlestown and there's expectations of me given that. And I am uh, the daughter of a police officer. And so I have expectations and rules and regulations around that. And I have to stay in this community and I can and can't do certain things. And now I am, you know, at risk for Huntington's. And um, do I have to worry about my future or can I just stay in the present? And who am I? And what if you just I am? Um, so that was one of the biggest lessons I learned in writing that book, the identity of you, you, you are, you just are.
0: Do you feel a deeper connection to the actions you do on a daily basis, or the, the, the kind of thoughts that, that you have? Like what's, what's most important to you?
1: Um, I don't really know if I, so, you know, your thoughts can be crazy if you watch yeah. them, right? So you're, it's being aware of of the chatter that's going on in your head isn't always, the chatter is not always a useful place to stick around. But in terms of the doing, I, you know, my days, they're very different depending on where I am. So speaking with you today was, is something that I've been looking forward to and, and I'm in here with you right now and this is wonderful. And then later today I'll be giving a talk tonight in front of a couple thousand people And my intention for that will be about what can I hopefully give to them that they can use in their lives that will be helpful. Um, But day to day, if I'm home with my kids, it's it's there's a lot of doing there. There's a lot of, you know, tending to them and, and what they need. And it's honestly, I think it's it's being present in whatever is happening today in this moment is how I try to live.
0: Yeah. I think I asked that very clumsily. Let me rephrase. Okay. With, with the knowledge that you have, what is most important to you during this life?
1: Oh, wow. What a, that's a gorgeous question. Right. So I, I feel exquisitely aware of, I've only got so many minutes in this life as Lisa Jenova in this, in this container walking around here. And so what do I want to do with that? Um, and, you know, personally, it's, you know, it's about loving the people in my life and and having them know I love them and feel loved by them. Like that's that's my personal purpose. But greater than that, in terms of being a storyteller and a neuroscientist, I really feel like I want to be an ambassador to the, the vulnerable, vulnerable. I want to. um I want to help people understand our shared humanity, our connection to, um, you know, these folks who've been otherized because of their, you know, their brains working differently or disease or disorder. Um, They're excluded from belonging and they're alienated and marginalized. And I think that these conditions and diseases are hard enough to deal with without having to feel lonely on top of it. So I feel like my life's mission is to help those folks who have been otherized and marginalized due to something going on differently in their brains that I can help people who aren't familiar with those become familiar with it in a way that is um compassionate.
0: You have a you have an expertise that I I don't want to waste and so I do want to ask some very kind of practical things, but what do you do to take care of your, of your, like, what do you do in your own life to take care of your mind? You get one, you know, you get this one mind and what are the physical things you do? And also the, the practices that you do to, to try and take care of this really fragile and complex system, um, that you know, you can also, besides just having physical brain health, also mental brain health, what are the things most important?
1: Right. There's physical, emotional, and spiritual. I think that, I love this question. Thank you. I think that so many of us are used to thinking about our health from the neck down. Like, well, how am I, you know, heart health and I do, I have the Fitbit and like, you'll go to the doctor and, you know, you'll get checked out for all kinds all kinds of issues from the neck down, but we tend to think that we don't have any influence over what's going on from the neck up. And we do. And so um, we know I I try to eat healthy. So I eat whole foods, Mediterranean diet, low sugar. Um, And we know that that kind of diet decreases your risk of Alzheimer's by a third. So I try to exercise every day. So I love yoga and dance, Um, But I'll also walk if I don't have time to do those other things. Um, I meditate. I like to listen to podcasts that are uplifting or have some spiritual message. Um, So this morning before we got together, I was listening to Oprah in conversation with Eckhart Tolle talking about a new earth, which I've read a, a bunch of times. And it's always fascinating to read those sorts of books over different ages so I think I read it when it first came out and then I read it again maybe 5 years later and I was underlining underlining entirely different s- sections. So I try to, you know, go to the sort of go to the spiritual gym every day and that I listen to someone feeding me um a way to frame my thoughts and energy around the spiritual stuff that matters. Um I try to get quiet with meditation or walk um, and I definitely exercise and, and eat right, um, and then it's all. And, and I think social connection is super important for me too. So, you know, being in touch with people I love every day and, and having sort of real conversations with them.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, diet and exercise is a life-threatening choice. You know, if I if I start to eat poorly, if I start to drop off exercise, I am one hundred percent more likely to end up suicidal and uh it's taken i've learned that the hard way Uh. you know by like slipping and sliding and i still do because i'm human you know where like things get away from me and so yeah i mean it's just something that i have to you know some people can skate a little bit i think i my wish is that oh everybody would you know eat fresh food Mm -hmm. you know really fresh food with lots of produce and um, take care of themselves physically. I think it's the the quickest hack you can get to, you know, this show is called how to human, like first and foremost is like eat better and exercise and drink a lot of water and at least give your, and sleep. Yeah. And at least give your body a chance, you know?
1: Yeah. I like to, and I, I really do think of my body as, as this is the container I'm riding in. Yeah. Like, this is just what I, I'm, I'm, riding in for this lifetime and so you know if it, if it were your car and you needed it to last eighty years you'd you'd really need to take good care of that car or it's going to rust and break down and and not work anymore and so I really do view this as like i I have a lot of soul work to do while I'm here and I'm riding in this body so I really want to take care of it so that it kill it'll it'll go the distance
0: when it comes to your creative path and, and your journey. I've talked, I've talked to uh, somebody who's won the Oscar and won the Grammy, Paul Williams, and the high that comes with it, the valuation that comes with it. He said with ex- with the Oscar, it was gone in 24 hours. Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> which is an extreme, <laughs> an extreme example, but what's your relationship to your worth as an author and how do you maintain a healthy worth even without external stimuluses and what's important to you about being healthy, because you seem like health is important to you, creator, especially with your relationship to yourself.
1: Yeah, I think I'm fortunate in a few ways and that, again, I didn't grow up as a writer. So, you know, I think a lot of the folks who, you know, have the MFAs and did the Iowa workshop and bread loaf and, and whatever, there's a a sense of like there's a ladder of success and you need to climb those rungs and you want to sort of reach the pinnacle and whether that's you know the Penn Award or the, or Pulitzer or the New York Times list. Um, I didn't grow up that way, so I don't have that sort of programming that I have or that expectation, and so I don't I don't think about you know are my books going to win awards. Um, I try as much as possible to just get out of the way, like get ego out of the way. The intention isn't about me. It's about what the book can give. And that's so rewarding. It's so rewarding to think that like, well, and I don't read the one star reviews, for example. So I stay away from, you know, not everyone's going to like this, you know, it's still else is not going to be everyone's cup of tea. And that's okay. I can't, I'm not going to try and win over everyone, but for the folks that it landed with and it meant something to, and it's going to help them in some way, like that's huge. That's everything. That's what I want. So in terms of, you know, do I want to make more movies? Do I want more of my books to be, um, adapted into film? Heck yeah. Um, It was a ton of fun. It was, you know, such a a journey and a ride and, and an experience. And I got to meet a whole different set of new people. And it, I'm amazed that films ever get made. It's so complex and there's so many variables and people involved. And and so it's exciting and thrilling in the one sense. And but the real reason I want to do it again is because oh my god, look at how many more people we can reach. Through film and how much good that movie has done for folks. And so, you know, most people don't really know anyone with Huntington's disease and can't imagine what that looks like. You know, maybe people are familiar with the fact that Woody Guthrie had this, but that was a while ago. And so I'm sure millennials don't know who Woody Guthrie was. Woody Guthrie. There you go. So, um, so I don't you don't know anything about Huntington's and maybe, you know, you're not going to get to reading inside the O'Brien's. A lot of folks won't. But if that we're going to film that movie this summer. Oh, wow. And so when that hits the big screen, millions of people are now going to become familiar with what Huntington's is. And and that's my intention. And that's not about me. All these wonderful things come from it that are exciting and wonderful to experience for me. And it's a great, great ride. Um, but that just comes along with being in the flow of, of this intention, I think.
0: Congratulations. That's major. Thank you. And I'm, I'm really excited for your book on bipolar as somebody who severe mental illness. I can't wait to see what you do with it. Thank you. As a storyteller, which, you know, For me, my hope when people listen to this program is a similar hope that I'm sure you had when they watched Still Alice, is that you don't pay attention to the details and you cut to the root of what we all have in common. And so where one guest could be talking about her healing from sexual violence, we're not talking about sexual violence. We're talking about healing, which is a universal concept, just like And when I talk about writing or storytelling, that's not just about writing or, you know, traditional storytelling. It's that we're all here to tell stories, Mm. you know, from since we were ancient, sitting around the fire and telling stories was actually like the first schools and the first way that you learned about life. And it's, it's the way that you interact with your coworkers and the way that you actually, uh, you know, get raises is your... how your narrative comes into contact with other people and as a storyteller you nailed the conflict which i think is a major part of a great story and not the major conflict not the conflict that oh you have alzheimer's but that you captured the little real conflicts of everyday life especially with the daughters with the husband who has his own um dreams and also wants to still stay on the career path even though it's really you know against kind of like what the hollywood dad would do
1: right or the perfect person yeah like
0: and i think that conflict and our relationship to conflict and ability to see conflict is is so important not only in Communicating with others and finding things to bond over, you know, because the things that we get through, I think, is what makes really powerful connections is that when I meet somebody who has survived meth addiction or who has survived, you know, critical depression, that's a, a bond. And how do you, I don't know if it's intentional, how do you bring conflict, which is reality, into a story? and try and make it palatable because a lot of shows I feel like are a great escape. You know, a lot of books are a great escape Mm -hmm. from our reality, which which is nice, but they all still find conflict that's interesting and real to our cores. And as a storyteller, how do you find that conflict that goes from making it a predictable, boring read into, I don't think I'm using the word lightly. I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's a masterful work of interactions between humans down to the all the way all the characters interact. You captured something wonderful.
1: Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, while I'm, telling the truth about alzheimer's under the imagined circumstances i also really want to tell the truth about these um, these fictional people and what do i mean by telling the truth about them i think that all of these you know diseases and conditions and mental health they don't happen you know, where to a family where they're like okay this is going to happen now when we're all going to get all our can I say shit on the podcast? <laughs> like yeah. We're all going to get our shit together and everyone's going to be the best version of themselves all the time. And we're going to handle this beautifully. It's like, no, people are in the middle of their lives and they're doing what they're doing. And, you know, in still Alice, like Alice and John, they've been married for a while and they're kind of in parallel play. Like they love and respect each other, but they're not real intimate anymore. Um, and then this disease shows up and she needs an intimacy that they're not in practice with anymore. And, you know, also everybody goes through the stages of grief. I think when any of these things happen and it's everyone involved, it's not just the person diagnosed and you don't all go through these stages linearly or at the same time. So you might, you know, have, Alice in the room and she's in acceptance and John's still in denial. And one of the kids is in anger and another's in bargaining and they're all trying to have a conversation and it's not going to, it's not going to be graceful because everybody's coming from a very different emotional place. And, and so I wanted, I wanted to show that I didn't, I'm not interested in none of, none of us are perfect people with perfect lives. We're all flawed. And and if I'm telling a story, this intense story of, of, you know, Alzheimer's happening to a family, how is everyone changed by what happens? That's what's interesting to me. And there's going to be conflict and clumsiness and you know people trying their best to do the right thing or the best thing, but that's different for everyone. So like John, he loves Alice and wants to, to take care of her. And he's also terrified of what's going to happen to her and what's going to happen to him, you know, because we're all, you know, we're all the heroes of our own lives, whether we're making quote the right decision or the wrong decision. And so a lot of people had a hard time with, with John and him really focusing on what he needed to do to save his own future and his inability to, to get past denial in a lot of ways too. Uh, but he was doing the best he could. So I think that I try to, depict real people who are all flawed and doing the best they can.
0: This is the way I like to end the program. But if I could pull out a phone and we could put you, and on the other end of that phone, I'm going to rephrase this. If I could hand you the phone and on the other end is you at your most confused and scared in life. And you could talk to her right now what are the things that you would tell her are most important? What is the information or the message that you would give her to kind of be the guiding compass of her years into becoming who you are today?
1: Mm. I've actually, thank you. I've actually thought of this. Um, if I could go back and tell my younger self when I was in that state. Um, and I'm very lucky when I'm in that state, I've always called my dad and he's so wise and has always given given me great advice but I've not always been able to hear it given who I was at the time um but I would say my biggest guiding message and I I would have shared it to that confused younger version of me is this too shall pass like it's all temporary don't cling to what you think is so important or terrifying or or necessary right now um I had a I had a ring that I used to wear, um, until recently that is inscribed, this too shall pass. I would touch it anytime I would get bound up in fear over anything because it's going to pass. Um, and my daughter, who's a freshman at Georgetown really had a hard first semester and, and, and struggled with, um, a lot. And when she came home over Christmas, I took the ring off and gave it to her. Um, so she's got it now. Um, So yeah, that's the biggest message is, is don't, don't hang on to any situation. And and even the good, the wonderful things that are going on, the recognition of the appreciation of that this is wonderful and and so glorious and amazing and, and maybe, you know, filled with awe and, and to appreciate it because that too is going to, it's, it's all going to go. So there's always the next moment that's uh, super helpful.
0: I love that. Yeah, sometimes it's just as important to abandon your hopes and dreams as it is to abandon your fears and regrets.
1: Yeah, well the the hopes and dreams are um I think it's yeah, to not get too attached to what well, has to happen this way. Yeah. It's I love the idea of like, well, I hope that I write a great book about bipolar and and we'll see how that unfolds and to not I don't know how it's all going to assemble, but just to trust that if I've, if that's my intention and my hope and my dream, that it will unfold in a way that supports that, but I can't dictate how it's going to happen.
0: Yeah. I I think I don't mean to distract from the end of this conversation, but yeah, for me, it's really important to find a way to enjoy the process. Yeah. Because the destination is not guaranteed and it would be such a shame for like, let's say this program to go on for two years yeah. and never become what I want it to and have only been sustaining from this end point.
1: Right. Right. Never can. Well, because I think that if you just shoot for like, well, I need this thing to happen. And when I get that or when I achieve that, then that will be the successful moment. And that's when I can enjoy it. Um, if you're not bringing your best self or enjoying or being part of the journey and, and being in the, the magic of what happens along the way, then when you get there, those ingredients aren't there. I think that part of the success that comes is you've you've put all of the ingredients into the recipe along the way. And so when you get to that That end point, um, which is just another moment, it contains all that good stuff that you've been adding.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and congratulations on the success you've had so far. And I'm looking forward to following your career.
1: Thank you so much. It's delightful to know you. You as well. Yeah.
0: Hey, so that's the end of this conversation. But if you don't want the conversation to end, you can follow us on social media on almost every platform. We're at HelloHumans.co, except for Twitter, which has an underscore CO. Our website is HelloHumans.co. We have great stories, videos, and the episodes live there as well. And for more of our guests, for more of any of our guests, I always post their social media, their books, their videos, their art. In the show notes, which is another word for the podcast episode description, and it's available wherever you're listening. I promise you just have to click around. If you'd like to help us out more, there's a few ways you can help. Please share this podcast with your friends or people that you think would get value out of it. Writing us a review on iTunes is incredibly helpful for our ratings. And also, of course, this program is not possible without listener community contribution so our patrons are our financial backbone of this product that's how we manage to do this ad free you can become a patron by going to patreon.com howtohuman how to human that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com howtohuman how to human this is the how to human podcast a production of hellohumans.co until next time have a great day